Amen. Well, I'd like to add my words of welcome to those that have already been uttered. I always enjoy coming here to this meeting. It's one of my favorite meetings. I think that's because I'm meeting with those of like precious faith, those who particularly love those portions of God's Word that deal with prophetic events that have yet to take place. When I speak of portions of God's Word, I think I could say that large portions of God's Word that deal with future events. It's a joy to be able to be here and to share with you and to rejoice in what it is the Lord has said is, is going to happen. It's nice to have my wife with me. I had to smile when Mr. Tom said he's glad when preachers bring their wives. Well, I have only one that I could bring. <coughs> it's one of those grammatical structures <laughs> that are open for a comment like that. <laughs> but it is good, and I'm pleased that my wife embraced the truths that we all rejoice in long before I did, for she was saved many, many years before I was. The little booklet Mr. Toms mentioned is a transcription of a sermon I preached in Greenville, South Carolina, about 30 years ago, and I did so at the invitation, the pressing invitation of a young man. He wanted me to speak on Christian education and the rearing of children which I did, and the sermon, because it belonged to uh, the Greenville Free Presbyterian Church, was on their uh, website uh, on sermon audio. And this lady came upon it just about a year ago, phoned me up and said she had enjoyed it. Could she transcribe it? publish it, and issue it free. And I said, I would have no problem whatsoever with that. So that's the origin of it, and we, we commended sentiments to you, maybe not stated in the best possible fashion or anything of that nature, I don't boast of that, but the doctrine set forth, uh, I can stand over and rejoice in and I have no reason whatsoever to change the opinion that I held 30 years ago and which I held uh, many years before that uh, when in 1979 uh, my wife with a little assistance from me launched Kilskiri 
independent Christian school, which is the first in Northern Ireland. And we have rejoiced in the fruit of that school uh, ever since. We have seen three, maybe four generations go through it. We are, are seeing our children, our grandchildren, and now we're into our great-grandchildren attending the school. And I, be, I say this before God as humbly as I can and with thanksgiving. God was merciful indeed to us through that school. We have retired to a house just right beside Kilskiri Church. So we overlook from our kitchen the playground and we see the children, hear them every break time, lunch time, when it's not raining and it does occasionally not rain over in Ulster. Uh, I actually was born in Fermanagh, although I'm living now in Tyrone, just about for only inside Tyrone. They used to say about Fermanagh that uh, there's an awful lot of it underwater with Loch Erne and all the rest of it, and not and what is not underwater ought to be, because uh-huh. it's of no real use. But uh, I'm sure there's plenty of farmers in Fermanagh would dispute that. But I commend it to you, and I wish every Christian assembly had a Christian school. That's a serious, serious remiss on the part of God's people. Serious indeed. That something is addressed very clearly in God's word. We are not to raise our children. So there are three or four, and then hand them to the Philistines to take on from there. And then with their mouths hanging open in amazement, wonder why when they reach their teens, they don't share what we believe. How can they? It's a miracle of God that the children of Christians survive at all the instruction that they receive. And today... Well, what do we say about the education system today? It's an abomination. It's an abomination. Hell could not produce anything more wicked than that which is the current educational curriculum that has been embraced by all of the United Kingdom. There, there, there is, as you know, a drive on for children to be taught to admire, to embrace all the perversions that are current within society. And I can't understand Christian parents not alarmed or concerned about these things. It's dreadful. But That's only a comment, by the way. We're here to discuss a different subject altogether tonight. And perhaps I could just read uh, a verse in Hebrews chapter 11, two verses in Hebrews chapter 11, that will 
bring us to the topic that has been given to me. I have to say that when I was invited to uh, speak on this series and I saw the subjects that had been chosen, I jumped at Enoch. I jumped at Enoch. And the reason that I did jump at Enoch was because of what we read of him in Jude, or Jude rather, the book of Jude, and the chapter, well there's only the one chapter, but the verses 14 and 15 uh, refer to Enoch. And when I saw how that Enoch, who lived way back at the dawn of time, preached about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and it's a long time ago that I came on this. And I myself was learning these truths. But I rejoiced. I rejoiced. To think that this doctrine has been taught since the dawn of time. Before the first coming. They were talking about the second coming. Looking forward to the second coming. I often say when, when I draw attention to those two verses in Jude. That it's very likely that Adam was in the congregation. Because Adam died just about 57 years before Enoch was translated. And Enoch had lived many, many years as a believer and a faithful servant of God before that. So, the chances are, I believe it anyway, that uh, Adam would have been there, listening. Which, to me, brings alive the fact that they were thinking of the second coming. Not only thinking of it, but they knew about it. They were instructed about it. I've often said that people as far back as Enoch and Adam, people like Job, people like Jacob. Uh, I could rhyme off all the great names of the patriarchs and prophets. Knew more about the second coming of the Lord Jesus than do the believers of today who are but a short time away from that event. God's people today are ignorant of the second coming. And I say that kindly and graciously, but they are. They are. I often preach upon it. I'm retired now, uh, but when I get a chance, I do preach on a related subject. And even if I'm not preaching on a related subject, it comes in. Because no matter where you go in the Bible, it comes in. And how often Christians have said to me, you know, our minister never mentions the second coming. That's an awful thing. That's an awful thing. Because it tells us that all of the prophets, Peter said all of the prophets spoke on this subject. So that if I get a chance to speak to one of these ministers who never preaches on the second coming, I like to tell them, you're outside the ranks of the prophets. 
You don't walk as they walked. You don't practice what they practice. And, and I'm talking about fundamentalists now who pride themselves in being men of the Bible. But I tell you, dear friends, it is the greatest scheme of the devil to blind people to what the Bible teaches about the second coming of Christ so that God's people don't see the approach of the second coming. When you're driving down the motorway, heading for a certain destination, you better keep an eye on the signs or you could overshoot it. Give yourself a lot of trouble getting back on track. Well, the Bible sets before us the evidences of that which indicates to us of the, repro- of the approach of Christ. And we need to take note of it. The devil doesn't want us to take note of it. Because if we take note of the signs that Christ has, has highlighted, we become aware of the deceits of the devil because the signs that Christ points out are often related to the deceitfulness of the devil that will be evident in the last days. Oh, it's a subject I rejoice in. I have to say that it's a long time ago. I was really only starting out as a preacher, student, I had the privilege of, of having as a friend Dr. John Douglas, who later became my brother-in-law. And even way back then, John was a man who was very well versed in the subject of the Second Coming, very well versed in the Bible. And I learned a lot from him. And the more I learned, the more the Bible was open to me. It was open to me. And I saw more and more and more and more of the grand purpose of God. Well, I'd still like to read those two verses in Hebrews, the chapter 11. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found I taught and indeed I'm involved in teaching this chapter once a week to school children in in our Christian school and when I was speaking on on Enoch on this verse and I love you know when you're reading the Bible there's things just suddenly occur to you that you hadn't seen before and I read this verse by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found oh I never really thought about that that would indicate to me that they went looking for him of course they did and children have a wonderful imagination and you can work on that and I was saying to them you know can you imagine I don't know when the Lord took him nighttime, daytime when he was out where I don't know anything about it but maybe he took him at nighttime and 
Mother called out, breakfast ready, Dad. And there was no answer from Dad. And some of the children, go look for your father, where is he? Is this not possible? I think it has to be. He was not found. And if you want to see a little parallel in scripture, remember when Elijah was translated, they went looking for him. The prophets went looking for him. We'll read a little further. He was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Well, let's seek him just for a moment, please, before we endeavor to study a little further what God has to tell us about Enoch. Let's bow in prayer. Our God and Father, thou art the God of Enoch. He is in thy presence even now. And we thank thee, Lord, that thou didst enable him in his day so, so long ago to witness a good confession and to leave behind a testimony that even today has an impact upon us. Oh God, how important is the return of the Lord Jesus to this earth. In many ways it's the culmination of his eternal purpose. It will see, as it were, the fullness of the harvest of Calvary to a very large degree. And Lord, thou hast thy people since the dawn of time to consider it, think about it, meditate upon it, and long for it. Lord, awaken the church to the coming of Christ. Like, Lord, the wise virgins of Matthew 25 who slumbered and slept while the bridegroom delayed. Lord, waken up true believers everywhere and let them realize that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Waken us, Lord. Awaken us. Help us to study, to be thrilled with every word that God sets down regarding this glorious event. Oh, please, Lord, speak to us here tonight. You know my need, Lord. The years have gone by. We're not what we were, Lord, in every sense of the word. And we need Tonight, more help than we ever did need. Lord, I pray you'll touch me. Bring to my mind the matters that you would have me to declare. Fill me with the Holy Ghost, Lord. Fill me with thy power to proclaim this Holy Ghost revealed truth. I ask of thee for Jesus' sake. 
Amen. 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 As I said to you earlier, I jumped at this topic when I was very kindly invited to take part in this series. I've loved what the Bible tells me concerning Enoch because it carries us back to the very earliest days, the very earliest days of mankind. Now, there is not a great deal in the Bible that speaks directly of Enoch. Only a few verses in Genesis 5, the two verses I've read here, and the verses in Jude. That's all there is. But I do like to tell the children, and I'll probably repeat that phrase many times, but I do like to tell the children in school that God is able in a small step to say very much indeed. God's word is called a seed, and one seed contains a thousand harvests. One seed brings forth a multitude of seeds, which in turn, if they're planted, will bring forth an even greater multitude. And so we go on. It all starts with one seed. And God illustrates in nature so many wonderful things concerning himself and his purpose. And the seed... Illustrates to us how God is able to take a sentence and pack it with truth. That's why we never weary in going back to God's word and reading over that which we have read many, many times before. Because we discover things that we never saw in our previous readings. Oh, study your Bible, dear Christian. And ask God to open it. Ask God to open it. That's what God the Holy Spirit is tasked with. Opening the scriptures to you. Wonderful, wonderful thing. Who could ask for a greater tutor than the third person of the Trinity? Well, what we may read of Enoch is small in volume but mighty in its abundance concerning beneficial and blessed information. I would like to emphasize from Hebrews 11 and the verse 5, that little phrase, Enoch pleased God. Enoch pleased God. And that's the testimony we have of Enoch Tonight, what an epitaph for any tombstone. What a record to be placed over against our name and our life. He pleased God. That's that's precious indeed. And just 
how he pleased God is what I would like to consider with you uh, this evening. In my daily reading a month or so ago, I read these words in John's second epistle and the verses 4 and 5. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. As we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now I thought to myself as I read those words, that the directive given us here by God, as to how we should walk, is one that has been given from the beginning. The revelation of God never has changed or altered. God's word is unaltered and unalterable. Mm, how dangerous are those who come along with the notion that they have received a fresh revelation from God, no trace of which you can find in the Bible. Oh, dismiss that person as a false prophet, as a most, a most dangerous individual. They have come with the devil's lie upon their lips. God's word to us tonight is unchanged since the beginning. It has been enlarged since the beginning. It has been opened up since the beginning like going back to that little seed dropped in the ground it begins to grow and to develop as we are aware any of us that have any interest even if it's only down to growing a potted plant we see this process well so it is with God's word everything that is written in the book of Revelation is to be found in the book of Genesis, in embryo, developed and developed and developed throughout the scriptures, but it's in essence the same from the beginning. Now, <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah said, and this is an endorsement of what I'm trying to stress at the beginning of this message. He said in chapter 40 of his prophecy, and the verse 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And we're back again to God using nature to illustrate. Yes, we've talked about the seed, it grows and it develops and enlarges, but being of this world it decays and declines and disappears but the word of the Lord while it has that characteristic of growing and developing it doesn't it doesn't decline and fade it doesn't decline and fade change and decay in all around I see says the hymn writer but the great exception to this truth is God's word. God's word. Dear Christian, what a joy it is to have 
in our possession that which is utterly, utterly trustworthy. No matter how the world may come and point their finger at this verse, that verse, this chapter, this book, and laugh and scoff and, and make out that it's all ludicrous, you just continue to believe it because one day it will be all fulfilled. And we will rejoice greatly in that day. First thing I want to say then is that Enoch pleased God by walking in obedience to his word. That's how he pleased God. Mother, father, how pleasing is that day when little crawling baby struggles to its feet and begins to walk. The chances are that day was noted in a diary, noted in a letter to friends and family. Because it was a big day. It was a big day, an important day. A wonderful manifestation of the continuing growth of the child and the health of the child. And so it is pleasing to God when his people pass from crawling infancy to standing up and walking in the word of God. I think that what we read of Enoch in Genesis the chapter 5 <clears throat> If you would turn to it, please. And I always like folk to just check out that what I'm saying is right. Uh, in Genesis chapter 5, or chapter, uh, yes, well, it's chapter 5 I can turn to men mention first of all. Uh, in verse 21 we read, And it lived sixty and five years, and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God. I think that set him apart from the majority in his generation. Because in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 6 and the verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man, not every man, but man generally, was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Three words in that verse are so worthy of note. They are every, only, continually. There's total depravity at work. And where in the midst of this you find a man walking with God. What a contrast he was to everyone else. These mentioned here in the verse 5 are walking against God. Departing from God. Defying everything that God has laid down by way of commandment. Trampling it under their feet. And here was a man walking with God. 
And he was. Therefore, a contrast to his generation. And there's nothing more pleasing to God than here we are, a little group. There's nothing more pleasing to God in a wicked generation for him to see some doing what's right. Doing what's right. Undoubtedly, the spirit of Cain was at work in this day. You can only take a moment or two, if you wish, to read Genesis chapter 4, and there you will see how sin is beginning to break out amongst men. There's murder. There's polygamy. There's slaughter. And it's all becoming common. Springing from a rejection of God's way of salvation. For that's what, that's what Cain's first manifested rebellion against God was. He rejected the way of the Lamb. And embraced his own works as a means of, of heaven. There was no written word in those days. But I've no doubt there was an oral account of the truths of God. That which God would have taught to Adam, Adam would have related to his family. I've no doubt about that. I've no doubt about that. And there would have been a direct enlightening of hearts and minds in the truths of God. As we see in the case of Enoch, he was able to speak about the second coming of Christ because it would have been directly revealed to him. So that there was, amongst even this fallen generation, a witness, a word from the Lord relayed on by father to son. And I have often thought that the testimony of Adam in particular must have been the most wonderful testimony. I can never imagine Adam telling of God's mercy to him without floods of tears. How, how conscious he must have been of the wickedness that he had engaged in and the consequences of it. He had sinned against God. And now he began to see in his son Cain and generation after generation across the earth where he lived nearly a thousand years he saw the flood tide of wickedness that he by his sin had unleashed upon the world. We're always slow to see our faults and to see the consequences of our sins in others. But surely... Adam must have had a clear picture of what it is he had brought about amongst men. And as he would have testified and told of God's mercy, it must have been a very telling witness indeed as he spoke of the promised Messiah who was to come. For God had revealed that in chapter 3 to Adam. First, uh, almost the first words spoken following the fall 
were words in which God revealed the promised seed who would come. And of course, the worship of the believer was centered upon that promise. And a person who was a believer manifested their faith in that promise by the offering of a lamb. That's where Abel's offering distinguished him from the foolish and blind religion, rebellious religion of Cain. He offered a lamb. And by offering that lamb, he was saying, Lord, this lamb symbolizes the one you have promised. And my offering of him is an indication that I'm trusting in that one who is to come. And my offering of him upon an altar, his slaying, his death, I, I, in, I understand to be a picture of the sufferings that he will endure in order to bear my sins and to make atonement for my sins. So, Enoch walked with God in the midst of a generation I suggest to you did not walk with God to a very large degree and that distinguished him. Enoch was saved at the age of 65. That's what we're told in Genesis 5 and 21 and 22. Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah and Enoch walked with God after he begat, begat Methuselah 300 years. So the event that marked the beginning of Enoch's walk with God was the birth of a son. You know, that has often been the means of awakening a man or a woman, a mother or a father, to their need of salvation. The birth of a child brings home to parent who is the author of life and who it is has acted so kindly toward them. As a daddy six times over Three boys and three girls. I well remember the turmoil in my heart and mind as the birth of each one of those drew near. Oh, the devil stood at my elbow. Told me that such was my sin. That I couldn't expect anything other than something terrible to happen to the child. Seeking to torment me. Torture me. Oh, he landed a few blows. But I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit reminded me of God's mercy. God's grace. 
God doesn't deal with us according to what it is we deserve. For if God were to mark iniquity, who would stone? But God deals with his people in the light of Calvary. And being brought to Calvary in those trying moments, I could plead with the Lord and, and rejoice in his mercy and kindness and anticipate that in the birth of the child I would see his mercy and kindness. And I am sure that in common with all who have had such an experience, Enoch would likewise have been brought to a place where he realized that God was the God of mercy and the God of life, and to him alone he owed allegiance. And so a child was born, and there was also an adult born, born again, Enoch. It says of Noah, Hebrews eleven seven, that he was warned of God of things not seen as yet. And so it was with Enoch. He was warned of God of things not seen as yet. He was warned of the very same event. About which Noah was warned and evidence of that is seen in how he named his child Methuselah according to many I make no claims to being an expert in Hebrew but I'm pretty good at reading the opinions of those who are experts and let me tell you most experts that's all they are experts in, reading the opinions of those who are true researchers. And they tell me that the word Methuselah, the name Methuselah, means when he dies, there shall be an emission, or the sending forth of waters upon the earth to destroy it. He didn't call his son Elvis or some pop star name if there were any such things back then. But he gave more thought to it. And he placed upon his son a name which bore witness to what was coming. I might mention, <laughs> I was preaching one night on, on, it must have been something related to that little booklet on raising children and so forth and I was scolding parents who raided the names of the pop stars and the so-called celebrities of the day to find a name for their child and I sort of was lost for a moment for an illustration and I said Elvis and it turned out there was a deacon in the church who was called Elvis, <laughs> who came to me afterwards laughing and agreed with the point I was, was making. His parents weren't saved at the time he was named. But uh, Enoch, he placed upon his child a wonderful name, 
He was the, the little one was a walking testimony, an advertisement of what was coming. God help us to raise children like that. God help us to raise children. Because I'm sure the child, he understood what his name meant. He lived from day to day with a warning of what was coming upon the earth. An essential aspect of walking with God today is our believing and acting upon the warnings of a coming judgment upon this earth. We need to live with that knowledge and live according to that knowledge. We must also warn our children and so teach them that daily they are reminded of this truth. How many Christian parents ever would act as did Enoch when he named his child? Yet that's, that's part of pleasing God. That's part of how Enoch pleased God. There's that young lassie from Sweden. Thornburg, is, is that her name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That poor little one is is a messenger of a lie. Mm-hmm. She's been instructed by her parents and made to believe that the world is is coming to uh, destruction as a result of man's actions and. Failing to counter the modern style of living. It's a lie. I wrote an article today. In fact, I just sent it out to the email group that I do send articles out to. Showing that a nuclear explosion or war is not going to end the world. Nor is climate change. That's not going to end the world. What's going to end the world is the hand that ended it in the days of Noah. And when I say world, I mean this age. That's who's going to to bring it to a close. Oh yes, man's wickedness has prompted and provoked God. But it's God who will end the age. Not man. So I don't care what changes man may make in his life style he's not going to stop the eventual intervention of God because man in his way of living is in utter defiance to God well we we ought to be aware and I suppose in a sense that we lassie teaches us a lesson in that she believes that climate change is going to end all things and she's alarmed and frightened and courageously has gone out on a crusade and she's upbraided the greatest of leaders who might mock her but they haven't an answer because it's true man is abusing creation and I'm afraid that we lassie and all who might be of her mind will never bring a change to that. Never in a million years. 
As we drove here to the meeting, down the M25, three lanes of traffic, bumper to bumper to bumper to bumper. I was thinking you'd have a job persuading every one of them to get out of the cars and start walking. And throw the keys away. No. But listen to this. Second Peter. Second Peter. Very quickly. It's important. Second Peter, the chapter 3. Here's the application. The practical outworking of what it is we claim to believe. 2 Peter chapter 3, the verse, the verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come. Now we shout hallelujah at that, don't we? Amen. It's going to come. Hallelujah. But listen. It will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the element shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? In the light of that, you've got to live a holy life. If I really believe what the Bible says about the end of this age, then I have got to live holy life. I've got to be make ready for that. People scan the weather forecast, especially people in areas subject to floods and so forth. They scan the forecast. Is it going to rain? If it is, I've got to get the sandbags out, etc, etc, etc. And here the forecast is far more serious than any weather forecast. And I just say this. When it says here the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements, etc., etc., etc. The many would say, well, there you are. Where's the millennial reign in that? Here's the day of the Lord. And it's the end of the physical earth as we know it now. Where's the millennial reign there for? I've had that put to me. Well, just look again, because listen to me, and I say this all the time to the children, look at every word. Look at every word. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which. In the day of the Lord, these events spoken of here by Peter will take place. But the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period. We're not going to go into that tonight, but it's not too hard to prove. The day of the Lord is a lengthy period. It's the day when the Lord will reign upon this earth. And the events spoken of here will not take place at the beginning of the day of the Lord, but at the end. And you only have to read Revelation 20 and on into 21. And you see where the millennial reign takes place and then after it there's the new heaven and the new earth. And that's the beginning of it there. But the point that I want to make of course is 
that if we believe these things, then what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Do you believe in the second coming? And I want to tell you, every day you should be manifesting a, a spirit of preparedness. A spirit that distinguishes you from all around, even as Enoch was distinguished from all around because he was walking in obedience to God, he was pleasing God. Enoch walked with God for 300 years amidst increasing wickedness. Increasing wickedness. Increasing isolation. The number of the righteous would have been dwindling all the time during that period. What we read in Genesis 6 was surely beginning to show itself before Enoch was translated. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. You know, what man sees and what God sees are two different things. Today, men look out on the actions that are taking place within society and they rejoice in this wonderful advance, this liberating of man, this enjoying of a freedom never known before. We're going forward. We're going forward. God sees it very differently. God sees it very differently. And God looked down in the days just prior to the flood and he saw that the earth was corrupt. Man was living in utter wickedness. Now man at that time, he didn't think of himself as living like that. He was, he was enjoying himself. I walked the pavements on the way into the meeting. And there, even though it's January and anything but warm, there they are, sitting outside, drinking and carousing, thinking nothing whatsoever. Maybe seeing us coming in and with a Bible under our arms and wandering. Oh people today are saying it's wonderful to be alive in 2020 look at the things we can do look at the doors that are open to us look at the freedoms we have out of the woodwork in the last 25 years has crawled every form of perversion every form of perversion and wickedness I wrote an article there because someone back home born a male decided to take on the appearance of a female and proclaim themselves to be a female. Though, and there is an interview with them on the news site, they, they have the, the voice of a bass drum, this female. And they were complaining that they didn't get a job when they produced their birth certificate and the company saw that they had been born male. I don't blame the company. Because they employ females. And this being was expecting to use 
the female facilities. And how any female, normal female, could feel happy with that prospect would beats me. And the employers quite rightly thought about this. And I'm not au fait with what the reasons were for their turning down the employment of this individual, but I can imagine that was one of the thoughts that crossed their mind, and if it wasn't, I'd be very surprised. That individual, like thousands today, rejoiced that they can do this. They couldn't have done it years before. Public opinion would have been raised up against them. They would have been shamed and forced back into their hole, their hiding place and the concealing of their sin and their wickedness. But today we're living in a wonderful age. Wonderful age. God doesn't see it like that. We need to realize that. We need to realize that. But Enoch walked with God in the midst of this. Even in the midst of the greatest of sins, dear Christian, you and I may walk with God by his grace and by his help. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones in their their generation who feared God and followed him wholly. And even so, we may find grace to walk with God even as did they and Enoch. Second thing I want to say, very quickly, which is a phrase I frequently use and has no meaning whatsoever, but as quickly as possible, the second thing I want you to say, notice is that Enoch pleased God by contending with the rebels of his day. He was a contender for the faith. And here I referred to Jude, the verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, preached of these. And we may easily identify who it is referred to by the word these. Because beginning at the beginning of uh, Jude's epistle, we are told about certain men who have crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Perverts today say, say, God made me like this. No, God didn't. As it was at the beginning, God made them man and woman. Sin and corruption and lust and filth has made them like this. And these men that Jude is identifying are the very ones in previous generations, right back to the days of Enoch, 
God's servants opposed. They are those who deny the only Lord God. Romans 1 tells us all about that. And our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude traces the pedigree in subsequent verses and the manifesting of this spirit of rebellion that was seen in the men who had crept in in the days of Jude into the church. He shows these men are of the pedigree of others who have gone before. He mentions the angels who fell from their first estate. He mentions Cain. He mentions the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Hebrews and their folly in Egypt. Korah. Balaam. And then right back to the days of Enoch. There has always been this evil strain. This vile, rebellious element within society. And it is the purpose of God's servant to ever preach against such and show them to be what they are warn people of them the police are forever warning of various dangerous individuals and practices and swindles that are going on in the world Well, God's word has been doing that and God's servants have been doing that long, long, long ago. Warning against those who are far more dangerous than any that the the police may warn you about. They may rob your home, they may take money from you, they may cause you injury. But we're talking about those who will damn your soul if you fall victim to their deception. Enoch preached against these apostates. This is surely a, a, a rebuke against those evangelicals of today who remain silent in the face of today's apostasy or perhaps worse still associate themselves with them in cooperation and fellowship. I can't understand a Christian remaining silent in today's society. I can't It just completely bamboozles me. In John's Gospel we read of those who believed that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah, but they didn't confess him, for they feared being put out of the synagogue. What will eternity hold for these men? And to be an evangelical and know what is wrong today, at least to some degree, and know who is wrong today, and yet remain silent and allow all around, including their congregation, to be deceived by them, simply because they fear the repercussions that may befall them from their fellows. I thank God that the Lord delivered me from such fears. I was saved on the 5th of April 1964. One week exactly later, the 12th of April, I attended Ian Paisley's church. 
and Ian Paisley in those days, irrespective of what you may have read about him in his latter days, Ian Paisley in those days was a mighty man of God. And I walked into his church and in a very real sense I walked back 20 centuries and I sat down in the atmosphere of the Acts of the Apostles. He was a man of God, a man of Holy Ghost power. And I wasn't too long there until I learned that we serve God irrespective of what men say. We must obey God at whatever the cost. And that's what Enoch did. He exposed the wickedness. The preaching of Enoch was most plain. You often need to look at those two verses in Jude. He called them ungodly. In, in fact, if, if you do <coughs> just turn to Jude and to those verses that we mention, you'll see that Jude tells us that <coughs> he uses that word ungodly a lot of times. Verse 15 He's warning to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Ungodly. The word is an abbreviated form surely of on God like these, the, these people were the very opposite in their ways their beliefs their appearance to God and they spoke against the Lord he speaks of their hard speeches against Christ in the dawn of time men have been speaking against Christ our brother uh, chose Psalm 12 for his reading uh, tonight. And I, well, you may even have seen me scribbling even as he read, and it wasn't out of any disregard to what it was he was saying or what it was he was doing. For I believe in the reverent listening to the Word of God, but I did want to take note of the fact of what it is. Uh, we read in that psalm, the, the, the verse 4, and it's speaking here of wicked men, the ungodly man, that's who's spoken of according to verse 1. Then verse 4 it says, Who have said, With our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Men believe, you know, that they can overcome God by the use of their tongue. It's their, it's their chief weapon against God. Their chief weapon. They employ their tongue to blaspheme God. Almost every breath they take. I cringe and I hit that phrase that to a large degree, I think, although I'm, I'm sure... 
uh, it can't, the blame can't all be laid at the feet of the folk in America, but to a large degree it came over with American television. Oh my God. That's an awful step. And it's an expression employed by people without regard to God at all. It's just a, an exclamation of disgust, of anger, of surprise, and whatever. And God is thus blasphemed. And James tells us that the tongue cannot be tamed. And man can't tame his tongue. And only the grace of God can change it. As one of the elders in Kilskiri, in his testimony he would tell of how he was a foul-mouthed individual before he was saved. He worked as a car mechanic. And he said he just used to fly into rages with the difficulties of what it was he was doing. And he would have employed the foulest of language. But God saved And it stopped. It stopped immediately. God contained the tongue. Not only did he preach against these apostates and make it most plain in the terminology employed, as Jude 14 tells it, but he plainly declared their coming judgment. Behold, the Lord cometh to execute judgment upon all. That has to be told to the ungodly world. The sinner has to know judgment's coming. That's part of our, our calling. And we must be faithful to it. I have no doubt that he spoke plainly of the Lord sending forth the flood. His son's name foretold that event. But he also preached about the second coming. And I'm sure he said, what is coming in a short time with the flood upon the earth is only a foretaste and a foreshadowing of what is to come. When the Redeemer comes the second time. All that would have been made plain by Enoch. All those years ago. All those years ago. The last point I want to make is this. Enoch pleased God by prophesying of the second coming of Christ. That pleases God, you know. Which makes me lament all the more. That there, ought to, there are men in pulpits, in evangelical pulpits, who never seem exercised to ever speak about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And when they do, they don't consult the Bible, they consult a commentary. And they get the thoughts of this man and that man. I have heard men say that the book of Revelation is so difficult, you could even start to try and understand and then that runs contrary to, to, to the whole principle of why it is God has given us the Bible. And the opening, the opening words of Revelation indicate pretty clearly the character of this book. The Revelation, the Word itself, 
It's an opening, a revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, or come to pass in a short time. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God. There's the sequence. Starts with God, through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit to John, and from John to you and to me. And it's meant to be understood, and it is. Not at all difficult to understand what it is. And it pleases God when men preach about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Let every supporter of SGAT take this to heart. We're only an insignificant little witness. Though a hundred years of the witness has just passed. And an age in which many doors have been shut. And organizations cease to be. I think it's a testimony to God's preserving of the witness. And it hasn't changed. It hasn't altered. It hasn't revised its views and standards. It's still the same. Because it just testifies to what's in the book. And small as we may be. Small as we are. Let us take this to heart. God is pleased with those who uphold the truth that Jesus is coming again. I think we can rightly conclude that the number of the faithful was very small in the days that led up to the flood. There were a dwindling number. The last one to go, Methuselah. When he died, it would come. All that was left was Noah's family, and of course, they were taken above the flood in the ark. And there's a picture. That's how it's going to be in the last days. Approximately a thousand years passed from the conversion of Enoch. And about 700 years from his translation until the flood came upon the earth. I believe that likewise we are destined to live in a day in which the numbers of professing and true uh, believers will decline greatly. Remember what the Lord Jesus said? And shall not God avenge his own elect? Which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. What are they crying? Oh, come soon, Lord. Come soon, Lord. It's an echo of what they're crying in heaven. How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? I tell you that he will avenge, as I may go on quoting the Saviour, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? 
shall he find faith on the earth. The old gospel witness is almost gone. You know, what happened to the Jewish church? Just before the Gentiles were brought in to the grand purpose of God, it's going to happen to the Gentiles. And if you look at the Jewish church in the days of the Lord Jesus, there was only the Simeons and the Annas and a few like them who were waiting for the Messiah. The rest were enemies and opponents. And from the very beginning of the Saviour's ministry, despite the many wonderful and glorious miracles, there was this rising tide of opposition. So it's going to be at the end of this age. I might say this, that It was God's means, this preaching by Enoch about the return of Christ. It was God's means of encouraging the saints in that time of trouble. Even as it is still the same today. The saints of God need to be reminded of the glorious times that are coming. To be reminded of the triumph and victory that is theirs in Christ. There's much to do to, to bring despair among the people of God because of the dwindling witness. The dwindling witness. But you see, there's a glorious dawn coming. Titus chapter 2. The verses 11 to 13. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of, our, of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to be looking at. That's what we ought to be looking for. And, and in order to look for these things, we need to search the scriptures. That's where it's revealed. That's where God has photographs of what it is that's going to come. This is his album. Showing us scenes of that great and glorious event. And if we are to, to be heartened by the coming of Christ, we need to study what it is, is revealed for us. But what a dreadful tendency there is to forget. In every little assembly of God's people, there's a communion table. And that communion table is a testimony to our forgetfulness. We're inclined to forget. How much the church today needs the message of Enoch preached amidst the sneers of those who profess Christ yet belittle the plain 
preaching and teaching of the Bible on the return of Christ. Again, in these days, when the return of Christ is openly denied, it pleases God to hear it preached. It pleases God. Knowing this first, says Peter, that there shall come in the last day scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Second Peter 3, 3 and 4. That's, that's the voice of today. That's the voice of today. And how sweet it is in the ears of God that there's a little gathering like this of people who believe that Jesus is coming again. That Jesus is coming again. The whole matter has become a vague and mystifying event about which, well, no one can really be sure. That's the view commonly held amongst many Christians. That is, in effect, to deny the second coming. You see, God's people have been affected by this atmosphere that Peter speaks about as being in the world in the last days. Denying, where's the promise of his coming? This sneering at any notion that Christ is coming again. Our brother mentioned Zachariah. If nobody has that job, I'm surprised uh, of dealing with Zachariah. What things he has to say about the second coming. Listen to this. This is some 2,500 years ago. Didn't I tell you they knew more about the Lord's coming back <laughs> centuries ago than they do today? Chapter 14. Just the verses 3 and 4. Then shall the Lord go forth. Oh, what a thrill of words. Evoke within the heart. Then shall the Lord go forth. You know, I have said, and back to that statement, I have said to the children that the miracles that generations of Israelites witnessed when the Lord went out, we're going to see it. We're going to see it. He hasn't changed, you see. He hasn't changed. Oh, men have painted pictures of him that don't in the least relate to what is revealed in the scriptures. But he hasn't changed. Then shall the Lord go forth. And a little further on. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Mr. Thompson and I often remember the short time we spent in Israel along with our wives and Dr. Douglas and we stood on the Mount of Olives and it was overwhelming to think on this very spot the Lord Jesus will come again and this world that mocks his very existence will have that mockery driven back down their throats shall stand that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall 
cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And then, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south, and ye shall be, flee in the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. You see those things? Now, I, I make this point. His coming does not bring an end, as some would teach. When he comes, that's it. Judge the wicked. Damn them. Cut them off. And the redeemed go to heaven. But look at something here. This miracle of the mountain dividing. And people fleeing into the safety of it. And the people are the Jews in Jerusalem. Because his second coming doesn't bring an end to events on this earth. They bring the beginning of a thousand years of peace. Increasing peace. And joy. The circumstances prevailing in Jerusalem at the time of the Saviour's return were set forth by that great prophet, Zechariah. You can read it, chapter 12, 13, and 14. The glorious events have been long planned by God and long revealed to God's people. But sadly, unlike Enoch, so many today are slumbering and sleeping and carelessly disregarding this glorious and wonderful and long-awaited event. Dear Christian, seek to emulate the great man Enoch in these matters and thereby Enter into and fulfill your highest calling. Pleasing God. That's what Enoch did. And I've sought to some little measure to illustrate tonight how it was he pleased God. May we seek to do that as well. Brother, I let you close.